We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Today, I have two guests joining me, Steve St. Angelo and Bix Weir. Steve St. Angelo from SRS Rocco Report and Bix Weir from Road to Ruta. This is going to be a kind of debate style presentation on a couple ideas that they both, let's say, disagree on. Maybe there's parts that they agree on. So I want to start by welcoming both of you to the show. And I, I really appreciate being able to, to host this debate between the two of you. Thanks for having us. This is great. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Absolutely. So, Bix, maybe let's let's start with you. If we could get a little bit about your background and kind of how you came to see some of these ideas. Sure. Um, Twenty five years in banking. Uh, worked for GE Capital, uh, capital leases, big equipment type stuff. Uh, moved up in the world. Moved to GATX Corporation, which is a huge leasing company. And for the last fifteen years of my banking career was dealing with mine valuation, equipment valuation. I'm a ASA certified appraiser, or I was, and I left the banking industry. Um, yeah, I got into gold and silver. You know, as I was analyzing mines, I'm like, hell, what the hell's going on with gold and silver manipulation? Got with GATA folks, and um, we've been fighting for 20 years now, 23 years in my, in my case, to stop the manipulation of gold and silver. And uh, about... 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I started my own website, roadtoruta.com, wrote a blog for a long time, and then got on YouTube about five years ago, and everything kind of kicked off and have been researching silver gold manipulation, trying to get to the bottom of what the hell's going on. And yeah, that's that's my story. And if uh, when I when I hear people say, Bix, I don't believe you, I love to talk about it Any, anytime, anywhere. So bring it. And, and this is kind of how this thing got started. Absolutely. Steve, how about a little bit about you and your background? Well, you know, I got into the metals about the same time Bix did. I bought my first, I mentioned this in some interviews, I bought my first 100-ounce bar. I bought a bunch of those uh, for $4.52 back in 2002. I remember it. And so I got into the metals just like everybody else does right now. And that's all the problems of the debt derivatives, the debasement of the currency, and all those issues are still true. And then as time went on, uh, I got more involved with writing. And I started a, a, a blog, a website. But then I was wondering, well, how is the price of the metals trading? And it would, this really interests me because I wasn't getting a, a, enough of a good idea of why that was the case. So I, then I started to realize, what would it cost to produce these metals? And that was basically due to a lot of the energy in all forms and stages. And so then I began to understand, and, it, and I, I put out analysis that the metals tend to be trading off of what it costs to produce them. And so I really started to focus on energy because I imagine uh, Tom and Bix, we get up in the morning. The first thing we do is we don't we don't grab our money or our silver and gold coin. You know, you, you turn on the shower, you, you turn on the coffee maker, you, you turn on your toaster. And what are you doing? You're burning energy. And, I, and so from the beginning, we wake up in the morning until we go to bed, we're burning energy. And so I always say. Stop burning, stop using energy for a week and it'll destroy your life. And so when you understand how important energy is, it's the foundation of our economy. And so that's why 
I have changed my analysis about the precious metals, even though I'm still a very strong believer in owning precious metals. I have a different message of why it's important to own the precious metals. And so now I have the SRS Rock Report website where we put out the information on what's happening with energy and why it's so important. And so I kind of differ with the manipulation theory. And, and so that's the reason why I'm, we're probably here talking today. And, and by extension, why it's important to own precious metals, right? Yes, why it's important to own precious metals. The energy is the key. And it was the key during the late Bronze Age. It was the key during the Roman Empire. It was the key during the Spanish Empire. And so it's, it's always been the energy first. It, it, with, without energy, there's no economy and there's no precious metals and there's no money. Right. So you guys can tell me where you'd like to start, but one of the most interesting ideas I think that was put forward, Bix, I think you speak about this a lot, is the idea that there's, correct correct me where, where I might be wrong here, but you know, a, a ton of gold that is undiscovered or hasn't been sluiced or pulled out of the Grand Canyon. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little more than a ton, but yeah, I, I think it's uh, um, it, it's a massive amount of gold within the color, banks of the Colorado River. Um, and this is where Steve and I kind of, I don't know if we disagree that the gold is there um, because it's it's well documented. I have slides if you want to see them. Um, the, the gold is there. The question Steve says, I, I think is his rebuttal is uh, you can't pull it out at, at a cost basis that makes money. So why? Why does it even matter? Um, I think it matters a lot. I think there's more gold than has ever been found in history, has been reported and examined up and down the Colorado River on either side of the Grand Canyon. You can't you can't go in the Grand Canyon and look for it now. But back then, um, we're talking billions of ounces of gold. And that's a massive amount of gold. So I, I spent two, three years just diving in there, actually went to the some of the sites, um, and yeah, the gold is there. The question is, can you can you mine it? Um, and I think that's where Steve and I kind of uh, would differ. He thinks it doesn't matter. It can be there, but if you can't mine it uh, cost effectively, then it doesn't matter. I, I'm exactly the opposite. It's the largest gold find in the history of the world. And mining it is just a matter of cost. And um, not only cost, but the, the flip side is the value of metal. If the value of metal is um, suppressed, yeah, you're not going to mine it. But if we have freely traded gold, that's a whole different thing. So that's kind of where I think we're we're butting heads. Um, what do you think, Steve? Okay, uh, Tom, could you go to the third slide? Uh, if you could start that slide where yeah, it's, I, it's the... I, w- I was going to ask, Bix, if you, w- if you would like to present some of the slides that you're you're talking about. Um, yeah, I can I can briefly show you how I got there, if sure. if you want. Or, or what, Steve? Why don't you tell us why you differ, and then I'll I'll show you why I'm the other side of that point. Oh sure, okay. If that's okay. I have no problem with that. Okay, okay. This those slides came from those slides came from one of Bix's YouTube videos of of why. He believes uh, that the grant, the, the, the Federal Reserve was started in, in 1913. And the reason I, I guess Bix stated, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, was due to all these billions of ounces of gold or dollars of gold, because it, what happened when a lot of silver came on the market in the 1800, late 1800s, there was inflation. And this was the same thing that happened 
during in the Spanish Empire in the 1600s. A lot of silver came out of Mexico and South America and went into Sp- into Europe and Spain. And there was a lot of inflation due to all this silver, even though the Spanish Empire was the leading empire. It also came at a cost. And so what what Bix claims and this article is kind of famous uh, of the billions of dollars of gold or in the Grand Canyon. And actually, it's the Glen Canyon. It's, it's not the Grand Canyon. Lee's Ferry is uh, located in, in Glen Canyon. But if you look at the article, uh, F.D. Watson, who's been conducting operations, says there's it says uh, he's carrying on operations that there's billions of ounces of gold there. And if you look what's important, and we'll get back to this. You'll see the date is Salt Lake, June 18th. And it's important. We we keep that date in mind. Can you go to the next slide? Now, Charles Spencer uh, was uh, operating and trying to mine gold in the Colorado for a while. And you could see Charles Spencer strikes out mining in gold in the San Juan River in 1909. That was a tributary. And so the mining engineer hired by the Chicago-based investors declared that the operation had no commercial value and they closed it down in 1909. So Spencer travels back to Chicago to convince his former investors to try again. So they, they wouldn't do it, so he found new investors. And then we look here, Charles Spencer gets more investors, and then it goes to Lee Ferry in 1910. Can you go to the next slide? Now, before this happened, if we go back to uh, the 18, late 1800s, there was a lot of, we found the, the California gold in 1848. There's a lot of gold there. And then we found gold, placer gold, sluicing gold. In, in Alaska. And then we found it, they were starting to go to Colorado. It started in 1883. They found some gold in the Colorado River in the Glen Canyon. And, and then they brought the dredges in. And the advanced Colorado dredge in 1900, it was well equipped to process the gold, but it was an economic failure. And if you look further down, and it shows in the Los Angeles Mining Review in 1900, that that's was the case. And then in 1909, the North Dakota, another dredge also fail for the same reason. Now, if you go to the next chart, Robert Stanton was in this area. He was an engineer, a railroad engineer. They were bringing a lot of railroads through the area, and he got interested in mining. And he started the Huskinini Gold Mining Company, and it's actually named after a Navajo chief. And so he started in 1897. He was very excited about mining gold in the Grand or in the Glen Canyon. So he bought 145 claims up and down the entire Glen Canyon because he saw the Glen Canyon, just all this gold in there. But after three months of operation, they only got $70 in gold. And so by September 1901, the company went into receivership and the property was sold for $200. So the next slide. Steve, if I can interrupt you for just one second, just to kind of put that into context for people, three months of operation, they pulled out less than $70 worth of gold. How many ounces would that be? And what were the prices back then? It's about $30. So it's about less than two and a half ounces of gold. And you see the issue with the gold in the Grand in the Glen Canyon, Grand Canyon, in the silts and in the, in the rivers, it's, it's, it's way too fine. There is gold there, but it's, it's so fine, it's, they, they can't really get it out economically okay and so can you go to the right in in 1901 in 1901 they did it they started in 1883 they did find a little gold further up but starting to dredge this gold they it wasn't economic for these major dredges so if you can go to the next slide 
Well, so Charles Spencer decided he was going to mine in Lee Ferry. And he wasn't going to mine in the river. He was going to mine up off the ground and, and sluice. So to power his boilers, which provide the pumps, the energy, just to pump water, to sluice the gold, he had to get coal. And they were using donkeys. Well, that was uneconomic. So what they did is they got the Charles Spencer uh, paddle boat. And that cost a lot of money. They, they got it built right close to where the Lee's Ferry was. And then they started shipping coal from up Warms Creek that was 27 miles upstream. And they brought the coal down to power the, the, the gold mining operation. Can you go to the next one? Well, this is what Spencer's gold mining operation looked like in 10 and 11. And, and the, this, is, this is what it comes down to. It, 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 the demise of the vast Grand Canyon gold riches happened in the summer of, of 1912. And the, the issue is the fouling of the mercury plates and the algamator was insurmountable problem. And this is the problem with mining, especially very, very fine gold. So the, the value of the mercury required to mine this gold exceeded the value of the gold that was recovered. So the financial backers became displeased. I'm going to read this with the management. Account books were reported. Many men were not paid. Lawsuits were brought. The bank account Spencer used for operating expenses and payroll was attached. The proof that the silts were not commercially enterprise eliminated the group interest in that development. And lastly, finally, in the spring of summer 1912, the entire, the entire mining operation was shut down. So the last slide, please, or the second to the last slide. So this, this is my speculation. Why was the, now, why did the New York Times publish this in, in June 19th or in June 18th, 1912? It was in the summer. Well, if you go to the next slide, this is my speculation. On the bottom, large operations are already underway, and it is understood that much more capital is to be furnished to increase the plants that have been established. Well, if we go back and look at the data, the mining operation was shut down by the spring-summer. So this is my speculation. F.D. Watson, who took over for the, the investors, was trying to get more money from other investors on a losing proposition. That's exactly what this logic shows to me because I'll show you, if you look at the other, uh, it's uh, 50 cents per yard in gold. And that's and I think that was uh, a bit exaggerated. If you go to the next slide. So if you're going to do placer mining, you first did it in California, that was the gold rush. The next place was in Alaska, in the Klondike. And why would you mine gold at 50 cents a yard in the Grand Canyon if you can get that, if you could get the same amount of gold, if you could get four to six times per yard in Alaska? And so this was the issue. And, and, and this just isn't back in the 1900s. This has gone back in history. It's, it's even today. There's places that the gold is just uneconomic to produce. And so uh, we see this with uh, gold Rush, if you watch Gold Rush with Tony Beats and, and uh, Parker's novel, some of the gold mining guys, they have certain property, it's not, they lose money. They can't make them, there isn't enough gold. And so this is the problem with the Glen Canyon gold. And the one thing about the billions of ounces of gold, there may be a lot of gold there. But if we look at the bottom, in 32 years of mining profitable gold, 
at more than, you know, four to six to eight times the amount in the Grand Canyon, they only produced in the same period from 1880 to about 1912, they only produced 7.5 million ounces of gold in, in that, in those three decades. So there's only at that point in time, there's only so much gold that can be brought out. And it, and as you can look, see in that chart, the gold it, per, per yard was declining. And that's what happened. They still mined. They still sluice gold in Alaska, but it was becoming less and less profitable. And so this, this is the issue. And so with the last slide, the reason why they abandoned the gold mining in the Grand Canyon really had nothing to do with the signing of the Federal Reserve Act, which I think Bix claims it has to do with most uneconomic, poorly managed poorly understood mining operations, financial ruin and abandoned dreams. So here's the abandoned Huskinani dredge. He just left it there. And this is the abandoned Charles Spencer steamboat. And this goes on all the time. There are hundreds and thousands of abandoned mines that weren't economic. And so I think that's the difference. Uh, and, and the last thing I'll say on this, we can go to another subject. If Even if you want to mine uneconomic un un gold, a uh, billion dollars worth of uneconomic gold in the Grand Canyon, you have to destroy it to get it. So let's do something else. Let's go into the oceans where there's $1.3 quadrillion of uneconomic gold, and we can get that instead. So leave the Grand Canyon alone and go and get the 700 billion ounces of gold that's in the oceans. That just makes more sense to me. So why that, we, that's why that, don't we just go. Why don't we just go to the sun where there's two trillion tons right. of gold? That's so. I, you know, Bix. And the reason why I, I, I just wanted to share this: if you don't have energy, you can't mine for gold or silver. And so, what the mining, the mining of gold in the Glen Canyon proved after 1912: no investor or no miner would waste their time down there because it just wasn't economic to produce it. They went elsewhere. And that's the reason why they left the gold in the ground. And this is the case in many, op many places throughout the world. They just leave uneconomic gold because people look all the losses, all those different companies that went bankrupt. And that, that still happens today. Okay. So, so your take is it might be there, but it would never be economic to mine. And it's true all, the, all around the world. There have been hundreds and hundreds of mines that started that failed because there were it wasn't economic but but or, has, was was there any that had billions and billions of ounces of gold there identifiable just uneconomic to mine well you see this is where it gets down to why would someone write that new york times article because they're misleading investors because he said, F.D. Watson said they were going to expand the operations that were already there. And he's lying through his teeth because they just shut the operations down. So it almost seems to me that if, I, if I'm going to use logic, that that was more of a way to get more investors to invest in a losing proposition to help some of the investors who lost money. And they didn't care if other investors lost money. They just wanted some of their return back because. Uh, again, fifty cents a yard. Uh, I don't think any miner would go down there and try to mine it for that. That, and and I mean, I I get it. I read the report you read. I know where you got all those pictures. It was in the cultural resources report, right. um, and I read that too. Um, but I didn't stop there. I kept going, and I I think if I could 
have my rebuttal now. If sure. It's um, could, could we could we just could I interject one one yeah. real quick question? Is, is there a, a material distinction between the Glen Canyon and Grand Canyon, and and why why is there that change, Steve? The Glen Canyon is starts right at Lee's Ferry and goes up. It's actually the larger part of the it, it, the, okay. the Colorado is 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 bigger, uh, and then there's the uh, the lower limit which starts at the uh, Lee's Ferry, and that's when the Grand Canyon starts. So it's okay. really the Glen Canyon where they did most of the mining, not the Grand Canyon. So is there well, a, a real difference there, Bix, of, of what you think or how you identify where you think all that gold is? Um, there is in that when was the area of Lee's Ferry cut off from mining or from exploration? And, and that was very important. I, I, I believe Lee's Ferry is still in the Grand Canyon, but it's you're, you're right. The Glen Canyon's up on top, the Grand Canyon's below that, and then below that is the lower part. After you leave the Grand Canyon, huge amounts of gold are found down there, just as was found in Glen Canyon and above Glen Canyon. So we're talking both sides of the Grand Canyon, massive amounts, billions of ounces of placer gold was found. Now, whether or not if it, it wasn't economical for most miners, and I can get into my slides about how I got to where Steve got, but I kept going because there's more to the story than just the two failed miners. There's a lot more to that story. So let me share my stuff. So put yourself in 1900. 1900, there was hardly any gold. We had just gone on gone on to the gold standard. Um, there was only 450 million ounces of gold that had been mined, approximately. The world's central banks and treasury had 112 million ounces. The U.S. had 21 million ounces, and then 71 million ounces have been coined. So the World Bank, the Treasury, banks, and coinage is 255 million ounces. And here we have supposedly billions and billions of ounces found in the banks of the Colorado River. That is gigantic. That No matter how much it costs to get out, and I get you, Steve, yeah, it, it wasn't ec economical. No matter how much that was, that amount of gold in a single place that people can identify and mine, even though, like you said, it's true, we'd lose money. But not everybody lost money. And that's that's kind of where I got. What I was looking for was this problem. Now, this is the central bank treasury stocks of gold. When we first went on gold standard, the, the U.S. Treasury, and we didn't have central banks, but the banks did hold gold. We only had 602 tons of gold. By 1940, from 1900 to 1940, we added more gold than has ever been added in the history of history. 1900 tons was added. Now, right now, the United States of America has what, 70 or 81, 8200 tons, 19, right? 19,000, right, Bix? Not 1900. Yeah, 19, yeah 19,000. 19,000 tons between 1940 and 1900. Where did that gold come from? That was my big thing. What the hell? I hate it when numbers don't match up. So I looked at how much gold did the U.S. produce? And we actually started diving after the Federal Reserve on our gold production. So we went on the gold standard in 1900. It went up a little bit, and then it absolutely took a dive. Now, it could be World War I. It could be a lot of things. I found out what it was, and I'll get to that in one second. But between that time, 1900 to 1940, only 141 million ounces had been mined by the United States. So it wasn't coming from us, from, from directly to the mine. 
I checked the world production. This includes South Africa, where they had find huge gold mines. The total world production was 858 or 24,000 tons. Did all the gold in the world flood into the U.S. Treasury? No, it wasn't flooding in. That's when I found this. Now, Steve is right. This was a failure. The Stanton attempt to mine this gold that he found there was a failure. But let's listen to some of the things that were said. And it might be, it might be just, you know, pump it up so we can get some money to what? To build another another steamboat to waste? I mean, it wasn't like these guys were running off with the money. They truly believed that they could get this gold out at a profit. And that is actually proven in a 1929 Supreme Court case that they both testified. They both testified that the, the gold was there and because th this court case was between Utah and the United States of America saying, who owns the gold in the ground? Who owns the gold along the banks of the Colorado River? So they brought them in and they both testified, yes, the gold was there. It just, it was so hard to get to. It was so the middle of nowhere, but we think we could have done it. So yeah, I think it was there. Some of the things they said, uh, men engaged in gold dredging operations expect to astonish the world. He says, when the whole field has been developed, the supply of gold in the world will have increased by billions. Exposed to the site are billions of yards of this silk containing more billions in wealth that, of precious metal that the human mind can possibly grasp. Yes, it is all sensational, but they weren't the only ones. It wasn't only the Huskanini guys and the, the Charles Spencer that were finding this gold. As a matter of fact, if you look at what was going on, which I did, I, I used the Wayback Machine. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great machine to go back in the internet, but also the New York Times. You can you can search the history. There was a, a mini gold rush in 19 in 1892 in Glen Canyon. That's the canyon right where Steve was talking about, right above right. Lee's Ferry. Yeah, I heard about that. Yes, there was a mini that, that there, you're true. That's correct. There was yeah. a mini gold rush. Yep. And it said the Salt Lake Tribune for a while in that year, which is 1892, more than 200 men per day went into that region. And it was very hard to extract profitably with the technology of the day and the, and the price of gold. Lee's Ferry find in 1912 billions of ounces in the silt capstone under. I've been there. I've seen it. I'll show you a picture in a second. Um, I didn't because I didn't believe it. I thought, bullshit. This is this is crazy. So I went out there to make sure that it was the true story. And what I was really looking for was that damn steamship, because who in their right mind would build a steamship in San Francisco, piece and part it out on a rail to horseback and then donkey it to this place in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the Grand Canyon. It was bizarre. So I kept digging. So the Charles Spencer attempted to mine plaster gold located at and around Lee's Ferry, but could not find profitable gold because of the exorbitant costs associated with mining in such a remote area of the Southwest. Then I I, I even saw the, the the guy you said, the Huskinini guy, Robert Stanton's interest in plaster mining in Glen Canyon was the impetus behind an organization of Huskinini Company and his dream to build a fleet of gold dredges. Unfortunately, he chose to mine rocky silt where with a bucket dredge instead of a suction dredge and was not able to mine any gold at at large after a large expenditure. Yeah, he didn't buy he didn't mine anything. He he brought in the wrong grudge. He couldn't he couldn't even try to get it. Like you said, he only got like two ounces after building this. I think it was three hundred thousand dollars at the time. And both of these guys were working off this guy, John Marks, who was a, a respected 
mining geologist. He wrote a report on the Glen Canyon and San Juan River, and they both used his report. Now, some say, well, he was like the report that was produced by the government said he was paid by these guys to do it so he could take this report to um, New York and Chicago to get the money. So they were getting the money. You'd think if they're a con men, they just get the money and take off. But no, they spent the money trying to get this gold out, but but failed. And you're right, Steve, they failed. But that wasn't all. There was a lot of experts went in the Colorado above and below the Grand Canyon. Robert Johnson, mining engineer, tested over 100 samples, 50 cents to 80 cents per cubic yard. Judge Anson Smith of Kingman, 40 cents to 120 cents per cubic yard. Professor Saladin, a famous French geologist, massive amounts of plastic gold along the Colorado River. Uh, Professor Sasan, mining engineer and geologist, 39 to 125. Eli Hitty, expert plaster miner, 40 to 210. E.A. Shaw and eight other experts spent three weeks there, 80 cents to 120 at Griggs Ferry, which is below the mouth of the Grand Canyon. Uh, and again, uh, John Marks. And then there were mining operations that were mining and were making money. Consolidated Mines was mining Green River at 25 cents to a dollar per cubic yard. Utah Placer, obviously the places that needed less expense, they could mine. And they weren't making a ton of money at it. And And you're right. It was a nightmare, and every, all those 200 people per day that were coming in were probably spent a week and just turned back around with their couple flakes of gold that they got. There is no, I am not arguing that point at all. Matter of fact, here's that that same report that you read, Steve. And it, I mean, that that got me digging into what the hell's going on in the Grand Canyon, and and why did they even do this report? Steve, did you ever come to a conclusion why the National Park Service ever did this report on the Charles Spencer? No, I, I didn't think about that, but there's been many reports about history in different recreational areas. But yeah, it's true. And, and, and this submerged cultural resource, that's actually a division of parks and recreation. Because um, a lot of those buildings, as you know, are still there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the US so people, people like history. So they want to know what was going on. And so I don't look into, you know, there's two ways to look at life. While there are conspiracies that do take place, I don't think everything is a conspiracy and I don't think you do either. And so a simple explanation is there are buildings there. What the heck happened? And let's explain it. But but it wasn't it wasn't uh, the culture wasn't about the cultural report wasn't about the buildings. Those were USGS took over the buildings. That's whatever. You know, you can't. I couldn't make anything of it other than, you know, they, they found a spot and they were interested in the Grand Canyon. But this report, this 100-page report where they brought in all these experts was for this. That's what they were – that's what they wrote the whole report about. That is the remains of the Charles Spencer. It's just a, a metal piece of metal sitting there on the side of a creek. Of, of, it wasn't a creek. It was the, it was the, the Colorado River. And and to me, I'm like, it this doesn't make sense at all. Now I'm not well, it was a first of all, it was a hundred and ninety page report. And secondly, part of the issue, part of the issue, as you probably realize, the parties involved were blaming the steamboat, the manufacturers of the steamboat. They said it wasn't powerful enough to 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 go upstream to bring the coal. And so they were blaming the problems of the failure of mining gold in Lee's Ferry. On the steamboat, and that's the they what they what they did on this cultural resource 
uh, report is to go back and show that the company who produced the the uh, steamboat and they went into a history about steamboat uh, manufacturing and how many steamboat boats are being built, the peak of the steamboat industry, and to show that the Charles E. Spencer steamboat was a very it wasn't the problem. It it worked as they they said it was going to work. Again, it was just a failure. It, it, hey, Bix. I mean, you can, you, I'm definitely open to look at this information, but there no, have I, been, I, I didn't have an answer. Many, there, there have, that, that, that they, answer doesn't make sense. That, that answer would, doesn't make sense. That, that the, they would do this. Then they did this in 1987. They made this huge submerged culture. I mean, it's, it's like sunk in like the Titanic is in part of the submerged cultural resource <laughs> site, not this clunk of, steam boiler that did you know didn't work or didn't work nobody the only people that cared is the 1929 case where they were trying to figure out who owned the gold in the sand utah or the federal government nobody cared in 1987 whether or not it worked or not but yeah it, it was part of the report I, I i have not figured this out and, and nor do i care truthfully but it brought me to further things to think about and one of those things i was thinking about is number one They've closed off most of the Grand Canyon. By, by 1922, pretty much the, below and above the Grand Canyon had, you got the Grand Canyon Monument in 1906. Navajo Nation is the, the east bank of the Colorado all the way up to Glen Canyon below, uh, down to uh, the confluence of the Little Colorado and the Colorado River, right in the heart of the Grand Canyon. All that's Navajo Nation land. You're not allowed to go there. You're not allowed to mine there. Not even the Navajos are, are allowed to mine there, by the way. And that's that's their land. That's their sovereign land. Uh, the Kalib National Forest down north and south of the Grand Canyon, the 1922, basically they locked up all that area. So even if we wanted to go, hey, let's go try to find gold in the Grand Canyon. One, I don't think I don't think you can do it at what what's the price of gold? Nineteen hundred bucks an ounce. You can't do it. But here's the deal that I I really that hit me all of a sudden because I've been trained in asset valuation forever. And I understand the cost side of it very well. And you're right. It didn't make sense at the time. But what was different at the time? The price of gold was fixed. The price of gold was fixed at $20.67 by law when we went on the gold standard in 1900. And the banks were printing money. Inflation was increasing. So the costs are drastically increasing. That's why you had all these mine failures in the 1920s. Steve, you're not looking at the other side of the equation. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand. I, I, okay. I, 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 you, you're correct. You see, the, the issue with doing a, a, a gold and silver, the issue with having gold and silver money, physical money, there's, there's two issues, if you don't mind. First of all, it's very problematic when you get a lot of gold fines and silver fines. It is problematic. And we, we and see this versa. over and over. And vice versa. It, and vice versa. The one thing is it causes serious inflation. And, it, and, deflation. That, and deflation at the same time. The next thing is a billion ounces of the silver that was used in circulation from the 1800s to the mid-1900s was Lost. Lost. And so if you're going to use physical money as money, the good thing is it's sound money and I'm all for that. But the bad thing is Americans lose $65 million worth of coins every year. Gone. Down the toilet, down the garbage. It's gone. It's just gone. And so when you understand 
in history, every civilization that started minting uh, coins, like the Roman Empire, they did not use metal that they, the money from the Greek Empire. That was all gone. Most of it, 90-something percent, was lost forever. So it was the metal that they mined at the time was used in their coinage. And if you go back and look at the silver denarius, and you're, you're a smart guy, you'll realize that when they studied the silver denarius, that metal came from the Roman Empire's mines. And then when you go to the, 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 the Spanish Empire, all that silver came from the Spanish mines. And today, the silver that we have in the recent 18, 1900s, that didn't come from the Spanish silver. That came from our mines. Right. That came from. And so this is the issue. And so I, I do agree. It's, it's a very complex situation. And but so it, it, but it's not new because they knew the problem, too. When they when the bankers fixed that price at twenty dollars and sixty seven cents and the U.S. signed up for it, they knew that was that was like the marginal price of most mines in the U.S. If you had a good mine, you're going to make a little money. But any any of this Grand Canyon gold would probably not do well. And as a matter of fact, that was a hot topic. As you can see from right here, this guy was the modern day Ron Paul. His name is Lewis McFadden. Lewis McFadden from 1920 to 1931 was the chairman of the Committee on Banking and Currency. He hated the Fed. He's like, they are screwing us big time because they have fixed the price of gold and they, all the mines are shutting down. All the silver miners already got screwed with the crime of 1873. So this guy, Lewis McFadden, said, screw this. We're going to fix this problem of all these mines being um, suboptimal. We need to get gold in our coffers. He introduced a tax. A tax on, not on the, the miners, but a tax on other than treasury gold. So they're mining gold. It's going to the U.S. Mint and it's going to what they call, uh, it's like the jewelry manufacturers. We're taking, all the rich people were getting their gold through that avenue. He was going to put a $10 tax on that gold, which is a 50% tax. And he was going to give that tax to the miners so that they can mine gold that is on the edge. And as a matter of fact, I found articles about this Senator Lewis McFadden, chairman of the Banking and Currency Committee from 1920 to 1932, introduced two bills to add $10 tax on all gold manufactured items, and that tax would go to the gold miners. And here's, here's the, uh, the two articles that I found. Uh, it would pay a premium to gold producers. Representative McFadden offers bill to prevent waste of national or resources. And then... Just to read off this, Senator McFadden re revives his proposal for an excise tax on gold. I can't read that under the thing. Census reports of condition of the industry. The idea of gold bounty is that production is falling off and consumption of gold in the arts is increasing. Hence, there's a danger of scarcity for gold as money unless its consumption for other purposes is discouraged by a tax. The industry is declining because the costs have increased like those of all industries, and yet the price of gold is pegged by law at $20 an ounce. It is argued that the excise tax would raise the price of gold elsewhere than at the mint and produce an equitable and adjustment between the producers and the industrial consumers. And then we have this article, and this sums it up perfectly. This is from the Salt Lake Mining Review in 1920. And this is the quote from this article. It is highly probable that the Congress of the United States at the earlier session 
will pass an act granting a bonus of $10 per ounce on all new gold produced in the United States. It appears that it is positively necessary that we have more gold in order to handle the business of the country. And only in this way can we have sufficient gold produce production to be secured. Such a law would material, materially advance legitimate gold mining in the banks of the Colorado River in Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and California. In the bed of the river and in the gravel bars alongside of it, government officials have estimated untold millions absolutely in sight. As a matter of fact, it is asserted that there's plenty of gold in the Colorado River between the mouth of the Grand Canyon and Big Bend of the River, a distance of less than 100 miles, to pay the national debt many times over. The problem was not that it was uneconomic to mine. The problem was the bankers had set the price of gold too low. And I would argue, and I, I think uh, uh, this guy, <laughs> Lewis McFadden, would argue that in 1935, that change in the amount of gold, the, the dollar amount of gold from $20 to $35 revived the mining industry. And as a matter of fact, you can see what happened right here, right in here, 1935, bang, it shot up. And then you had World War II and, and a lot of other constraints. And then 1980, we had gold price hitting 800 bucks, bang. That's what it was missing back then in 1900. It wasn't that it was uneconomic. It was the, the price they could sell the gold for was set. And the costs were rising because the, the banks were inflating the currency. Bix, I don't disagree with the information you're providing here. Um, I, I think, let me, let me see if I can provide a different perspective. In the past, if we go back in history, there are going to be bankers, there are going to be elite, there are going to be entities, <coughs> official entities that are managing this system. They could be managing it for ulterior motives, or they could be managing it for the betterment of the good. And th here is one thing that I, 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 I try to, uh, uh, we can get lost in this information and I don't disagree that there's this going on. The problem comes down to, I hear that basically the ills of the world are the bankers. That's, that's what I hear from many in the alt media, the precious metal community. If they stop the manipulation, Peter Schiff says, if we let the banks go under, JP Morgan, and get back to a free market, real money, that we can have expanding economy. The problem is it comes down to the energy. It comes down to understanding what's happening with energy, where my focus is. The issue is if the bankers made it a playing field, it was fair for everybody. And it's in the movie called The Margin Call that most Americans would be poor because it's, it's about the bankers siphoning the energy in our favor, the West and now Asia. A lot of, there's about three or four billion people who are very poor in the world because the energy from the bankers have siphoned it into our favor. Now, we, were, we had a lot of energy in the United States, which made us a very prosperous country for quite a while. But back in 2005, we were importing 75%. So we're taking energy from other areas and, and other people, other people in the world were poor because the bankers siphoned that in our direction. So at, at one, in one side, we can blame the bankers for manipulating things for controlling the gold, for controlling how, how silver and gold are mining. But it's really not the gold and silver that's important. It's the energy that's important. 
I, gold and silver, I call stores of energy value. And, and really, they have been for thousands of years. So I don't disagree that there has been control by entities for and against in p- different periods by manipulating or controlling how gold and silver are mined. We can look at it as being negative, or we can maybe look at it as being positive, because all that silver that was brought into the, into the Spanish empire was very negative to the Spanish people. As a matter of fact, they were impoverished, really, from all that silver, which it sounds crazy. So in, in the attempt to manage this, and we have, well, you might disagree, there, there is no market right now control of the gold price, even though many would say that the futures market is controlling it. There is no control. No one's controlling the gold and silver price. What's controlling it is how much can be pulled out economically. So if things are happening in the past, controlling what happens in the Grand Canyon, I can assure you, I still would not be a part of going into the Grand Canyon and mining gold and destroying the Grand Canyon. You don't need to. Either side of it has billions of ounces. You raise the price of gold to what I think it should be trading, five, $6,000 an ounce. Of course, they'll be going on either side. Oh my God, there is no other find in the world. I think the largest gold deposits, like, 30 million ounces. This is billions of ounces on either side of the Grand Canyon that at this low price of gold is uneconomic. Uh, now a lot of this land is is protected in national parks and and we don't even know what's in the Grand Canyon because we, we're not allowed to even take a pebble out of there. Well, l- let me ask you this. Do you think the world has more problems besides mining gold and the value of money? Oh, of course. The world has so many problems. I mean, I'm I'm just here to defend that, yes, we have this massive resource in the Grand Canyon and around that area. We don't even have to touch the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is 200 miles long. When people go to the Grand Canyon, they stand on that damn shelf and look over. That's all they do. I've been down there. I've, I've driven all the way to Lee's Ferry, and it is hell to get there. 100 miles either way, you can't get there. That's why Lee's Ferry became famous. Is it's it, Back then, it was the only place to get over that damn river. So there, I mean, all I'm saying is, yes, there's massive amounts of gold. We've known about it since the eight, late 1800s. It is uneconomic to mine because the price of gold, I believe, is way too low compared to the amount of dollars and dollar derivatives that are being traded and have been created. And yes, of course, it's being rigged. We see it every day on the comics in silver and gold and in, in uh, oil and gas in, in all energies. All those markets are rigged too. I had a I had a great teacher when I first started banking, and he was teaching about teaching me about how to value assets. And one of the best things he said: when you're looking at a company or an asset or a, a piece of mining equipment, and you're getting all the information, you're going to put together how you're going to value this asset. He said, "Garbage in, garbage out." So if you start with a shitty supply demand number that's not real it's fake or you start with a fake price for something not fair market value doesn't matter how much manipulation you do to it if the garbage goes in garbage is going to come out you're not going to you're not going to have like mainstream guys who say yes the price of silver is uh, $21 and it should be $21 because of this supply and demand 
That is a rigged price of silver. You're not going to get a good analysis from that. Garbage in, garbage out. And I, I always think of that when I think of valuing anything. Garbage in, garbage out. Unless you know all the variables of what's going on. Why did why did uh, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, why were the only ones in the last two days to make uh, transfers of physical silver on the comics? Stuff like that. It's like, oh, let's go back. And Ted Butler was saying, hey, they had a gigantic lease. And now we're seeing that end of lease transactions going on right in front of our eyes, even though other people try to hide it. Stuff like that, I think, is really important to understand without looking at the mainstream. I don't think there are many mainstream guys other than Jeff Christian who say, yes, all these numbers are correct and, and silver should be valued at $21, even though we're running out. I, I'm just, that's the way my mind thinks. And, and I run around trying to prove that it is either right or wrong. And I've, I've gone down so many conspiracy theories that have been wrong. And it's it's the ones that you get the good data, the good information that really adds a lot to the picture of what's really going on. Bix, if I, I, if I could if I could just add a quick little thing here, I, I looked up to your point in the last slide about paying the national debt several times over. The national debt for the U.S. in 1920 was 25.9 billion, almost 26 billion dollars. So, and it was actually paid down. Five years after that, down to twenty billion dollars. So, but remember, just remember, a little bit of historical context there. A billion is different. Back then, that was gold, twenty dollars for a gold piece. So you got to fit, and it's hard when you think about like mining technology now. You know, you can you can leach that gold out of the sand, and there's so many more ways you can get that gold economically if you are allowed to to do that. But yeah, everything was different in the 1900s, and we couldn't even get there. I mean, look at these guys, these crazy guys that tried to mine Lee's Ferry, built a steamship in San Francisco and, and trucked it in. I mean, to that, that blew my mind. That's why I didn't believe it. When I saw it, I didn't believe it. And then I go out there driving. It was like a three-hour drive from the Grand Canyon to Lee's Ferry because it's a couple hundred miles. And I middle of nowhere, I walk out there, and there's this little sign that says, this is an, an underwater uh, resource special spot and i'm looking down and it's just a, a, like half a steel hull that's in the water is crazy uh tom i'm trying to think about i've got some more slides I'm, and i'm trying to bring in the energy because uh this is why the energy is important um and i understand where bix is going with the details and it and i think what i try to to do is is a kiss keep it simple stupid principle and, and, and that tends to work. We tend to complicate things. And so the more complicated, the more it's difficult to really understand the truth, right? Here we go. Uh, and I imagine Bix will have some things to say, and that's great. Uh, the gold manipulation not really working. Uh, central bank gold sales and futures trading not holding down the price. Now, when the gold started trading freely in the future, in the futures market, and yes, I get it. Gold wasn't, you know, Americans couldn't couldn't hold gold bullion back, you know, between 1930s and the 1970s. I, I I get that. I mean, I don't see why we couldn't, but that's the way it is. So, so they start trading futures in 1975, and this was the reason why they were going to control the gold price. Well, it hit eight hundred and fifty dollars in 1980, and home stake mining was, which is one of the larger uh, gold mining companies in the United States, they were their profits, they were laughing all the way to the bank. And so the, uh, their profits were so high. And so when you look at that data, the profits were like 
60%, 70% profit margins. And so when you look at that chart, you see the price of gold come back down. And where does the gold come back down? It comes back down to the cost of production. Now, I'm not saying it does that. I'm just taking a chart of gold, how the market figures it out, however the market figures it out, and I show you where the cost of production is. Now, if we look at the right-hand side, uh, first, we had the London gold pool selling gold into the market in the 50s and 60s, uh, and then we had the problem at the end of the gold pool. But then we see a lot of, uh, a lot of gold being sold in the 1990 to 2009 period, uh, $70 billion plus or minus. And, and that could not stop the price and the gold rise in the price of gold. It went, you know, it hit $1,000 in, in 2008. And so there's, with the manipulation theory, and then, you know, JP Morgan is indeed, the traders are definitely guilty of, of manipulating the metals market, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, and, and the treasury market too. And there's a lot of, a lot of manipulation going on. But there's a difference between spoofing and scalping and holding down the price. Because right now, no one's holding down the price. There's no control that gold prices set at 15 or 2,000. And so uh, they made 2 billion plus or minus profits in the last 12, 14 years on, on manipulating and front running and spoofing. But how can 2 billion compare to 70 billion that the central bank sold into the market? And, and then the, the gold price fell when the central banks were net buyers. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say, we can get lost in all the details, but when you understand what's happening with energy, because energy changed the entire, the entire market, especially oil, because when oil came in the market, it kind of changed how money worked. Because back before oil came on the market, it, it made a lot of sense to use physical gold and silver. But as when oil came on the market, it became less efficient. And so now we're using money. Basically, money is a, is a, uh, it's, it's a basically a dollar or a fiat note is a claim on energy being spent. That's really what it is. And so we understand that's all we are doing is trading energy and making goods and services. It's not really the value of money that's important, even though I agree that it is. It's really what happens with energy because if I lost my silver coins, I would be less concerned about losing some silver coins than I would be not having energy for the next seven days. And so I think we need to, we need to put that into perspective. And so can you go to the next slide and then I'll let Bix, he can chime in. We can get into all the details of what makes this chart do what it does, the oil price and the gold price. We could say, well... They stopped, you know, uh, they go, you know, for one thing, in 1970, that's when the United States peaked in oil production and conventional oil production, 1970. And so when you see that we peaked in 1970 and then we dropped the gold peg and Nixon dropped the gold peg. And then we had the massive inflations. And this was due to the problems in the Middle East with the, uh, the, the two different oil shocks in 1973 and 1978. And if what it was for the inflation of energy that drove the price of oil and, and silver higher. So we had the first bull market due to the oil price inflation. And then we had the second bull market due to the, the second oil price inflation. And so when you understand that money, gold and silver, which are money because they store energy value, and that has been the case for 2,500 years, that's my analysis. 
the energy is the most important driver of, of, of the economy and money. And so this is an important dynamic. And lastly, all the different things, all the different people, all the players, all the details, the entities controlling what's happening with money, with silver, gold production, all that price controls. The falling energy return on investment is the key that allows all of us to survive or perish. And right now, that energy return on investment of oil is falling. And this is very problematic because our global economy is based on a high energy return on investment of oil. And that's why we're now facing all these problems with energy and all these massive inflation, which is the reason why you should be in the metal. So it always comes back to the energy. And unfortunately, I see, I hear a lot of all these manipulation theory, all these, all the entities and all these different people doing all these things, but no one's talking about the energy. And so I, I find that amazing. The most important thing we take for granted every day, no one spends any time really looking at. And so that's, that's my message. Why not concentrate on that that actually drives your life than those that might or might not? And, and so I think this is a more important message to understand. I would, the only comment I'd, I'd make on this is I don't, I don't believe that gold or oil or silver or anything is freely traded anymore. So the, the relative relationships between those commodities or anything these days Garbage in, garbage out. You know that always rings in my head. Garbage in, garbage out. If, if neither is freely traded, like for example, this this graph, I'm looking for when oil hit minus forty dollars. I I don't see it here. You know because I know it did. It, I, I was well, there. You know, and I watched I, it hit I, minus forty. I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. It's it's probably exactly the reason why it's the case. I don't get lost in the volatility and the details. I this is an average annual price. The, the details can weigh people down and get people lost. I, I, again, Bix, I keep it simple, stupid. And so by keeping it simple, I, I see things differently than when we get stuck in the details and we're lost. Because unfortunately, Bix, and you might agree with this, a lot of people believe that the green energy, wind and solar and EVs are going to save us. And they get stuck in the details. They may be an engineer. They may be a good engineer, but they don't realize that's not going to help us. It's a disaster. So if you stay in the details of why you are uh, an engineer producing an EV, you don't realize in 5, 10, 20 years, it, it's not going to help us. It's actually hurting us. And so I, I, can't, I can't blame or debate a person for wanting to understand more about making a better EV. But when you, when you pull back, look at the simple information, due to the falling energy return on investment of oil, and it's really falling, starting to fall now. We're not, we're not going to be able to make a lot of EVs in 5, 10, 15 years. It's, it's going to be uneconomic to do that. And so the, I guess that's the reason why I differ. I, I see things more simply and more clearly, and the details can kind of confuse us. And, and so I think that's why I look at it differently. Okay. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Tom, could you go to the next slide? And it, it, it may reveal a little bit more. Okay, this is the cost of production of silver. Silver tends to be more volatile because its primary is only about 25, 28, 30%. A lot of it's base metal. But if we look at the base metal miners like KGM Paleska, who is in Poland, and due to the very high energy prices now in Europe, because why? Europe is the largest net importer of natural gas in the world. And so when they get problems with natural gas, 
the production of things get becomes very expensive. China, on the other hand, produces a lot of its stuff with coal. They produce 4.5 billion tons of coal, so they have a much lower energy cost than Europe does. So KGM Poleska in Poland is now barely breaking even, producing all that copper and the 40 million ounces of silver. And so even though they're one of the largest silver producers in the world and people say they produce that silver for free, no, they don't. They, they, they need all that money that they get from selling their silver. They actually have a silver hedge book. So they need every dime that they can get from selling that silver to keep that company going, to keep those employees, you know, paying those employees and keep buying capital for new mining equipment. And so this, again, this is not my chart. It is my chart, but it's just showing what's going on in the market. And we can see the volatility. Now, I, at, towards the end of this debate, I do believe BIX are going to get much higher prices of silver and gold. But that's due to the problems we're going to have with energy. So if you can go to the next chart. Wait, wait before please. you leave this one. The Oh, go back. Sure. Yeah. On, on silver. I mean, if, if you look at the, the, the silver, is there a way to go back to that chart? Yeah, I'm just trying to. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the one thing that's missing, the obvious thing that's missing to me, you've got the price and the amount of um, silver ounces. Is that annually annual production? Or... I mean, no, what, this what's is missing is the you know, 500 billion ounces that are traded in the derivative market. I, it, it so outweighs any of this information. No, well, you see, uh, Bix, you bring up a good point because I had a debate with someone on Twitter. They said, Steve, because uh, the next chart, gold, they say gold, the, the price of gold has nothing to do with the cost of production. And I've heard this many times because there's the stock that flows, there's there, the, the central banks are overflowing with gold supposedly in their vaults. So it's really all that gold has to have some value with it, right? Well, that's true. Well, I don't make these charts up. I just look what the price chart is. And I, I look at the top top miners, either the, the silver miners or the gold miners. And I, I find out what their true cost of production is. And then I put that in there. And so I'm not making the chart up. I don't care if there's a trillion things trading in the market on silver or gold. And could you go to the next chart, please, Tom, the gold chart? Steve, if you could real quick, tell us what the average cost of production for gold and silver, you know, latest figures are. Uh, uh, well, Barrick hit the, Barrick hits the, hit the highest. It's now, I believe, at 1588, all costs. 1588, not the all and sustaining cost. And unfortunately, the mining industry uses some of these metrics to confuse the investors, especially the silver mining industry. And so right now, if you if you look at free cash flow, if you look at the adjusted debt incoming, because the taxes have to be paid and, and other things have to be paid. So if you look at the these approaches, it's about 1550 to 1600 now. So miners are lower. Uh, and if you probably cut out a lot of production, a lot of open pit mines, you can get lower lower cost of production, but you're going to lose a lot of production. And so it's it's fifteen fifty to sixteen hundred, and it's about twenty dollars for primary silver. And now for gold, yeah, it's about sixteen, but it's fifteen fifty to sixteen hundred. And so I'm not making. If you want to buy gold, if you want to buy the three thousand five hundred tons of gold that are produced this year disregarding how much is traded, you're going to have to pay what it costs or the mining industry can't produce that gold. And so if the, if the gold price like uh, 
Perry Dent says it's going to go back to its pre-bubble in 2004 to $400. You see, Harry, like many analysts, they have no idea about energy. They get up in the morning and it's energy. They just, just plug things in. They just clue, people are clueless. You know, push a button on Amazon and a day later you get your thing. But they don't know all the energy it takes to get there. So he looks at a chart without understanding what's going on with the energy in all forms and stages. And so it's easy to say on a chart, well, silver's going to go back down to $400. That's the pre-bubble level. Well, if it goes to 400, you could, you could take out 80% of the gold mining industry, maybe even 90%. You, you lose all that production. And that, if that's what happens, that's what's going to happen. So if you're going to, if, the, if there's demand for gold and it meets somewhat the supply, the market tends to do that. It, it somewhat meets the real supply. You got to pay what it costs. And, and, and it's not just gold and silver. It's copper. It's, it's lead. It's most things. It's shoes. It's sneakers. It's jeans. Even though some profits are higher than lower, the entire market that we have today, what it costs to produce it and the margin to sell it. And, and, and really, that's what it comes down to. And, and gold and silver, I hate to say this, they're basing money. And this is where I agree with Bix. They're basing money not on its store value, but they're basing it as a commodity and how much is being produced each year. And that only works if you increase oil production. When you stop increasing oil production, everybody wants to have their, their retirement account and their, their investments in the 401k because when they retire, they don't want to sell anything. They just want to get the yield on that retirement account. No one wants to sell any of their investments. They want to get a yield. You can't do that if oil production starts to decline and everything starts to fall over. This is the key to be in the precious metals, gold and silver, because they store this very important energy value. So it has less to do with the manipulation and it has more to do with the foundation of our economy, which is energy. And so, uh, again, that's I always go back to this chart because uh, Barrick and Newmont, which are the two largest gold producers, it's 1570, 1580 now to produce gold. And, and so they're producing 11 million. They're producing 10% of all the gold in the world, 9, 10% of all the gold. Well, if you want to buy that 11, 10 million ounces a year, you're going to have to pay what it costs Barrett to, to produce it. it. It's really that simple, or someone's going to have to sell it. And what, why would you sell it? You would sell it at market value. Well, what's the market? It's what it costs to produce this stuff. So if anybody can come up with a different, a different idea, I'm all for it, but I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Well, my, my take would be none of that matters, even energy. I mean, even energy is priced with derivatives on the, on the COMEX type of – I mean, that's the largest commodity bought and sold is oil, gas, all that stuff. And, and that was the idea behind the petrodollar that they set up in the 70s. I get that. They don't need that anymore. They don't need everybody to buy oil in U.S. dollars anymore because they have the derivative market that trades 100 times the underlying asset. Supply and demand don't matter at all when it comes to price. Silver is a great example. This will be, what, the fourth year of the silver supply deficit, and the price is, what, uh, 41%, 42% of its all-time high in 1980. How much How much U.S. dollars have been printed since 19... The, the insanity of the undervaluation of silver at 85 to 1 to gold is, is amazing. It, it's phenomenal. But all these commodities trade off computer programs and derivatives that trade these 
these the underlying asset in the hundreds of times what the actual real supply and demand numbers are. It completely distorts everything. And if you control those computer trades back and forth, which the U.S. and the banksters do, they're trading 95% of the trades that happen. I, maybe even 98, 99% through a company called Virtu Financial run by Vinny Viola, who's a, I would I would say one of the, probably the number one high-frequency trading company market market maker in the world. And nobody stops it. No, Nobody's, you know, him and uh, Bernie Madoff cut from the same cloth. They came from the same place. You know, he, Bernie Madoff was the head of NYMEX and, and Vinny Viola was the head of uh, NASDAQ or, or vice versa. And they both split and started their own companies at the same time to rig markets. Bernie got busted for some reason. Nobody knows why, but he got busted. Vinny Viola is still doing what he does with Virtu Financial. Now they're talking about banning it all together. Gary Gensler was talking about banning high frequency trading and and the the market making, you know, where you you t- you skim a few pennies off everybody's trade. But then but nothing gets done. And it's not like we don't know what's happening. Just look at the volumes on the comics, 100 million ounces a year, LBMA 130 million ounces a year of silver. And then you have all the ETFs and now Bank of America has all these strange uh, silver byproducts derivative swap functions that are just insane. I mean, we've lost all control of everything. Why not price gold and silver based on supply and demand? I mean, it would, it would be an odd concept, but why have 100x derivatives of an asset when it so distorts the price? That's what I'm fighting. I'm, I'm fighting the end of market manipulation through computer trading and derivative the derivative complex, because that's all that matters anymore. And until we do something about it, we're gonna we're gonna fail. You know, Buffett's warning of uh, derivatives being weapons of mass financial destruction is real. I mean, we're over two quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives now, and a pinprick could destroy it. Um, and it almost happened in in nineteen or two thousand eight, September eleventh, two thousand eight. We were literally a couple hours away from everything collapsing because this is allowed to happen. And I think we're getting there again. I I don't know what day. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was September 11th again this year that that because uh, JP Morgan gets out of their um, uh, deferred prosecution agreement for silver gold and and FX trading um, on September 27th of this year. And then they can do whatever they want again. So who knows what's going to go on? Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> no, no. And in, in, in ways, I do agree with you, Bix. And Tom, there's just one more slide. Mm-hmm. And then I, I can kind of wrap up with. Why, where we agree and maybe where we disagree and maybe Bix can too, just to give the viewers an idea, because uh, basically gold and silver are, are concentrated uh, stores of energy value. They're not stores of energy. A battery stores energy. Metals don't store energy. They store this energy value. And back when gold and silver were, were money and held at banks, the profits, the energy profits of the economy in, the, in that area were stored in that metal at that bank. Now the banks just have digital representations and paper money. So there are ways which I do agree with Bix. Now, I did, someone asked me, what, it, what does it cost? What did the energy cost to produce gold? And, and so this is a perfect example, but I'm breaking it down for my subscribers. Fresnillo PLC, start for, uh, the Spanish started producing silver at the Fresnillo mine in 1554. And then they, they expanded their production. And, and, and now 
a modern company took over. It's called Fresnello PLC. They've got three main silver mines. They've got another mine they're working with, Mag Silver, but they've got two main gold mines. This is how much diesel it takes, according to their 2021 annual report, to produce an ounce of gold. 69 gallons of diesel at the Herradura mine and 65 gallons of diesel per ounce of gold at the Nuche Bueno. And if you look at the silver mines and you average them, it's 400 times more diesel is being consumed to produce an ounce of gold and silver. It's always been about the energy, folks. It's always, always, always been about the energy. And so it, this is why it's so important that we understand. What, and I, I did tell Fib, there is one more chart after that, and that's the Roman, the Roman Empire. If you go back in history and you understand what it took for the Romans to produce silver, they cut down forests to make charcoal, because that's what you did up until the 1700s. You cut down massive amount of wood. You made, you smolded, you make charcoal, you took that charcoal, and then you smelted gold, silver, lead, copper, iron, et cetera. And so it was always about the energy. And the reason why they, the, and I mentioned this in many uh, interviews, the reason why the emperors were forced to debase the silver denarius, it's not because they were bored and they wanted to screw around with the public. They ran out of wood. They ran out of good quality wood, which is you go and you watch the movie Gladiator and you see the first scene, the, the, the major scene, they're fighting in a huge forest. They needed that wood. Wood was the, is the energy that drove these early ancient civilizations. And so when they peaked in their wood fuel production, they peaked in silver production. And then the emperors did the easy thing and they debased the currency to continue the civilization. Not whether I agree with it or not, that's what they did. And the bankers are kind of doing the same thing now. So in conclusion, this is, this is where I would agree with Bix that all the paper that's being printed, all the debt, all the derivatives, the interest rate swaps, if you think there's trouble, look at those interest rate swaps. But Bix says, I don't know when this is going to happen. Well, I've got, I've got a pretty good idea, but it's a guesstimation. It's about 2025. This is when the energy cliff that I do my analysis is going to start to hit us. It's due to oil starting to decline. And it really has nothing to do with the, the price you pay for it, because if the public has to pay much higher price, then the economy collapses because it's too, it's too inflationary. If the energy industry doesn't get a high enough price, they can't produce the oil profitably. So it's a, the falling energy return on investment is showing me that we start to get into real trouble by about 2025. And if the oil gets into trouble, everything else does. And all the debt, all the derivatives, all the interest rate swaps that Bix is concerned about, I am concerned about, that's when it's important to own the metals. It's not when the manipulation stops, if the, if the, the supposed manipulation or the rigging. It's when everything starts to fall apart. And unfortunately, it's not a good thing that this starts to fall apart. And it's going to be very disruptive. And what we saw in Europe last winter is just a preview of much worse to come. And that's why I think it's more important to focus on energy because we're going to have serious troubles in the global economy. And, it, and in, that's the reason why you should be in precious metals, but it's, it's much more than just being in the precious metals. So I think that's where we agree and maybe some of the places where we disagree. Anything to add there, Bix? No, I... I, that's that's Steve's world. I mean, he understands it better than I do, and 
I haven't even gone down that path. I just, I look at the manipulation. I'm like, garbage in, garbage out. If, if we don't have the right price set, fair market value of, of anything, then then everything else doesn't matter. We, we need to get back to a freely traded market. You can't do that with computers and derivatives and mass concentration by the banksters. So that's mm-hmm. it. One kind of question I had for for both of you is, you know, looking at these kind of snapshots in time, Bix, you brought up the example of silver being $50 an ounce in 1980. How long was it there for? And, you know, is that a, exactly, it was like a a day or two, right? And then it started to, to fall back down. So how good of a, of a benchmark is it to compare, to compare the price now to, you know, a, a handful of days 40 plus years ago? Well, I, I think it's a good question. Um, I believe the, I, I think silver was manipulated back then as well. Um, it, it wasn't a coincidence that gold and silver peaked at the same time. And then in 2011, you have gold and silver peaking at similar times, although gold was what almost three times what its original peak was, or two and a half. And silver was just about to hit that 50 again. I mean, I've, I've analyzed that. I was alive during that time in 2011. I was I was commenting as it was happening because a month and a half before JP Morgan put their guy Bill Daly in as Obama's chief of staff. And I'm like, uh-oh, look out silver prices. You know, this is the guy he calls his his the head of his SWAT team. And he gets in, he allows the price to go up to 50 bucks. JP Morgan does what they do, short on the way as it gets past 40. And then it creates an artificial bear market for the past, you know, 12 years now. Um, why well, I'd say we're in a in a bull market now, though. But it, it's fake. I mean, it was fake going in. They they brought the price up or at least allowed it, stopped the shorting, um, and then they slam it down. It, it happens every time. We need to remove these players the, from the game. JP Morgan gets busted with the largest fine in commodity history, $920 million. And they're still allowed to be the, the uh, custodian of SLV Silver, the largest silver storage facility in, in the world right now, supposedly. It's just insane what is allowed to happen under the watch of our government and our regulators. They're in on the game. There's no doubt in my mind they're in on the game, and they will continue to protect the system, and that's what they call it. They, they call it protecting the system. It's our it's our job to not allow the system to go belly up because everybody would be hurt by that. Absolutely, they would be. Mm-hmm. But all you're doing is allowing the manipulation to destroy what we know as free market trading and fair market value we can't we can't do any analysis at all if we don't have fair market value if we don't have freely traded markets i have i wrote a song called uh free markets are the road to freedom and i absolutely believe that you cannot have freedom if you have a a government that's willing able and will especially behind your back jump into any market and rig that price until they get it to where you know the political wind is blowing i think it's it's absolutely embarrassing for the United States of America claiming to be one of the freest countries in the world. But at the same time, it distorts prices and we and we get to things like where we are in silver. Three years uh, silver deficit with no end in sight. I mean, I can't see an end to the silver deficit ever again. How long is that going to maintain? I don't think very much longer. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, I think it's crazy to think that arguably the, the most important price in the entire market, the price of money, the interest rates are artificially decided by the Fed as well. And true. And with the the uh, Gold Act of 1934, I think it was, 
they implemented the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which has the legal authority to go into any market in the world and rig prices. It's it's legal for the U.S. government to do that through the Exchange Stabilization Fund, and that's run out of the Treasury. And the Treasury has a basement trading floor. Most people don't know that in the Treasury building and out of the New York Fed. That's where the Exchange Stabilization Fund is run out of, and they mainly deal in derivatives. So and it's unlimited what they can do. We need to get rid of the derivative complex, which is, yes, we're headed, either way you, you look at it, we're headed for a big, ugly mess. Mm-hmm. And can we you know, lift ourselves out of the mess and move forward? I think we can with free markets, but we can't with this continued kick the can down the road thing. And Steve, you know, you brought up a point about Harry Dent. He believes the the gold price is going to crash down to $400. And if I'm not mistaken, I I haven't spoken to him, but I believe a lot of his thesis is very similar to Henrik Zeberg. And that they, they think that is, is somewhat a, a crash price and not the, not the fair price for gold. Does that sound correct? Uh, I don't know, because we've had crashes in the gold price. But in that chart, we haven't really seen it go below the cost of production. Not much. Uh, and, even, and, and I think the difference uh, with, uh, you know, Big Smith puts a good, some points about the deficits. Well, if we believe the data, and I do believe the data, that the silver ETFs, even the LBMA, is about 900 million, a billion ounces of silver held in the custodians in these silver ETFs on the LBMA. You know, we use about a billion ounces of silver a year, plus or minus. So we've got a year's worth of silver if we wanted to use all that silver up, just back of the napkin. It's different with oil and natural gas and energy. Uh, we've got 30 days, maybe tw- some places it's 15 days supply of natural gas and inventories. Cal- and the West Coast is in serious trouble in the United States. Same thing with oil. We don't have a lot of oil inventory. And so it's a difference between what's happening with commodities like energy and silver and gold. But the last thing I want to say is I, I do differ about the manipulation because the Indians bought a lot of silver in the summer last year. And they, do you know why they buy silver, Tom? They're smart. They buy it when it's cheap. Mm-hmm. They're savvy. So when they see silver go down, and they and I think they're pretty smart. They understand the cost. They buy silver at the cheap. And so they bought a lot of silver in the summer. And then when the price went back up, they stopped buying. The issue is this. I differ that most people in the markets, especially the Western and Asian markets, who have a lot of wealth, they want their wealth to build. So psychologically, they could care less about dead metals because a dead metal in your safe doesn't earn you anything. So to them, their psychological, and, and this is important investing, they don't want to put money in something that doesn't earn them a yield or when they retire, they can get earnings off that. So the market is geared towards that. But as I mentioned, that only works with energy production, growing energy production. When that falls, that whole investment ideology is destroyed. And that's why we have to transition to protecting wealth. And you can't protect it in stocks, bonds, real estate. So again, getting back to BICS, okay. I, I think the manipulation kind of takes our eye off the real important ball, which is energy, because I ask all three of us to stop using energy for a week. We should contact each other 
And we would be crying at the end of that week how much it's destroyed our life. So if you understand that we should really be concerned about energy, then this is where my focus is. And then that's why it's important to be in the metals. So it's when investors start to understand what's happening with energy and the problems associated with it, with it's impacting the markets, inflation is going to go up. And that's why it's important to be in the metals. And I think the major fireworks are going to happen in the gold and silver ETFs. That's where the fireworks are going to start. And then it's going to bleed into the physical buyers. That's still a little bit down the road, but that's how I see it. What kind of fireworks, Steve? What do you mean by that? Well, because institutions control most of the money, and so people have the institutions control their investments, uh, institutional fund managers are just like you, Bix, and I. They get up in the morning, and they look at the market differently. If they're going to invest in silver, like the Alberta Management Corp did, out of Alberta, they bought 9.3 million shares of the SLV. They did so because they saw something in silver, but they didn't understand the reasons to own it. So they got rid of their SLV exposure. What happens is when these, what happens in Europe starts to happen throughout the rest of the world with all these problems with energy, the debt starts to implode, things start to get into trouble. You're going to see a, a mass exodus into these metals and the place to do it for the institutions is in the, in the ETFs. And then they're not going to be able to get the silver. JP Morgan warned us. They're not going to be able to get the silver if there's a major event of an, and we haven't even seen, that hasn't even begun yet. So they're going to try to access gold or silver to put in the ETFs, whether we agree if they have the silver or gold or not. And that's going to be a, a, a major firework because the premiums of these ETFs are going to go above the price, the, the, the market of the exchanges. And then it's going to find, they're going to find out we, don't, we really don't have enough metal. And so this is going to take time to play out, but that's where I see the, that's the common sense logic to me. And then it's going to bleed into, my God, I better own the metal because I don't believe you should buy the SLV. Institution has to. I don't want to. So that in time, that's where the, the, the common sense logic is you should be in the metals, but institutions can't buy futures, really, and they can't buy physical bullion. They're not built that way. They're not designed that way. So I, I'm not trying to change them. I'm just seeing how this is going to play out. Vix, mm -hmm. anything to add there? Nope. Other, other than yeah, SLV, it cracked me up because I look at what they, like the funds have to post what they hold. There was a fund called um, Private Investors Group. Right when the uh, you know the spike in uh, you know the Wall Street silver and all that stuff was happening, Private Investors Group bought 190 million shares of SLV, is what they reported. That that was a third of the entire SLV, and it got me thinking. Wait a minute, how is that even possible that one institution in one quarter bought a third of SLV and the price didn't move? So obviously, there's a lot of Back and forth trading, high frequency trading going on during the day that we, you know, just look at the volumes. I think Apple Apple stock every 15 days trades 100% of its shares where most people don't trade it at all. Um, a lot of it's fake. A mm -hmm. lot of our stock market or bond market, not it's not just the commodities that has a problem. Even U.S. treasuries, there's a bunch of fake U.S. treasuries out there that the Fed is buying up fake U.S. treasuries. It's just our, our entire system has become some derivative nightmare that they know, the Federal Reserve knows, the Treasury knows, and anybody you know, deep in the banking system, this is, this is the end game. It was always the end game to hyperinflate everything away and then let it blow. 
So the question is, when are they going to let it blow? I think could happen any day, but I thought I've been thinking that for 20 years. Who knows? Bix, if we could, I'd like to tie up a question that I had here. You know, in in one of your first charts there, you showed a massive jump in the amount of gold that the U.S. held. Did did you have an explanation for where that gold came from? And does that tie in to the Grand Canyon thesis? Well, it was. It, it's still a mystery. It's a mystery to everybody because the, the 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 Treasury and the banks were building, kept building and building. That's what got me into what was it. So I was digging through the archives of the New York Times and found that Grand Canyon stuff, which made everything else look like child's play. I mean, we're talking. You know, a hundred, what was it, uh, like five, six hundred million ounces versus billions and billions of ounces. And I got diverted. Um, but no, no, nobody's ever explained it. And I've heard other other uh, people talk about it. As a matter of fact, the World Gold Council, where I got that, uh, those numbers said, you know, nobody really fully understands how much um, gold came out of private hands, for example, and into banks. And it wasn't really after the the uh, the Nationalization Act in 33 it went up a little before that, but it it really did. I mean, nobody nobody really has explained why the the United States of America had in 1940 uh, twenty thousand tons of gold, and now we only have eight thousand two hundred tons. No, nobody <laughs> nobody's come up with a good explanation for me, especially at this time where I mean, any country who has half a brain is trying to get as much gold as they can into their treasury because they see something dark and gloomy on the horizon. Um, and I, I do think the the U.S. Mint is doing that with the the current problem with Silver Eagles. Um, they're they're still on allocation. They're only making four hundred fifty thousand coins every two weeks, which will put us again at uh, like thirteen fourteen million coins, probably a third of their production. When they claim they're they've greatly increased their Silver Eagle production, that's a whole nother conspiracy. We could talk about it at a different time, but I, I think it's important to keep our eye on. You know, what the government's saying they're doing and what common sense says you know, you're not doing. You can you can tell us all you want that you're increasing production of silver eagles, but the numbers are showing that you aren't. Well, that, that was actually the one thing that I did want to get into. Maybe we can run through it at a, at a high level. I've got sure. some questions from listeners as well. We can kind of do a rapid fire with that too, if you guys wouldn't mind. And uh, yes, I don't mind that. And Tom, I think there there is that one chart. I don't know if it's too much trouble. There is the one chart that shows the uh, official coin sales. Yeah, it's it's amazing how many coins we're getting from other official mints now. It's, there's a lot of silver official coins, which is a good thing. Uh, I think the official coins are going to be one of the more trusted coins to own in the future. Um, you know, uh, I've contacted uh, the uh, the U.S. Mint talk with the public affairs person, and so it's going to be he said, she said, right? Uh, we who we don't really understand, but you talk to the uh, the Sunshine Mint, the the one who produces the blanks, and uh, what we could see here, there are less silver eagles being produced, especially in 2022. I don't have that number yet for all, that will come out with the World Silver Survey. The the issue is. You could still get the silver eagle. You could still get the official silver coins. There's more. I think it's 100. And, is it 111 million? 111 million that were sold in 2021. It's going to surpass that in 2022. So even though the U.S. Mint is 
dropping the ball at producing silver eagles. The market is has the ability to get a lot of silver, a lot of uh, official silver coins. There's more than ever now. So uh, there's plenty, there's plenty of, of official silver coins available for the market, and I think that could continue to increase a bit until we have problems with getting uh, the the availability. Of, of the silver blanks and the ability to make these that that'll probably happen in the future with the problems with energy. I, I, I think it's bigger than what you're, you're stating. Yes. The, the other countries are making up for the, what the United States of America cannot do. Uh, the U S the, as we know, the premiums have gone through the freaking roof for silver Eagles. I mean, at one point it was like 80% premiums. The insanity of that is, is testament to, something going on they are required they are the only country only mint in the world required by law to make coins in quantities equal to demand that's the only country in the world the 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 canadian mint doesn't have to do it the perth mint doesn't have to do it south africa doesn't have to do it the united states is required by law to make as many coins to meet demand it doesn't matter if the demand is a million coins or 20 million or 47 million that they hit in 2015. They're required by law to do that. And they're making one third of what they can do, of what we know they can do. Now, there is no reason to do that. Now, the, the argument would be not from the Mint, but from uh, the guy over at the Sunshine Mint and a couple other people said, well, you know, other people pay more. The United States of America is required by law to pay more than anybody else. They're required to buy, to make Silver Eagles, no matter what the cost, they are required to, to meet demand and they are not meeting demand. They haven't been to meeting, meeting demand. If you if you would continue that slide, you're going to see in 2021, it's about 16 million ounces, half of what yeah. they did. And then uh, this year, they're on track to do 13 or 14 million ounces. Something bigger is going on than just, oh, uh, they're just dropping the ball. No, it it it's got to do with the new head of the mint, the director of the mint, Ventures Gibson, never been in charge of the mint, never been a person within the mint. Um, she was an HR professional within the US government for decades. Very, very well respected HR professional. Why would you put an HR professional as the head of the US mint and all of a sudden she can't make a silver eagle? It's really bizarre. David Ryder was the past mint director. He was a great mint director. He was the mint director, uh, I think, in the 90s as well. He's the guy who changed the security feature on the gold and silver eagles, put that little notch on the bottom that nobody has explained why. I mean, to me, it's kind of obvious. You can put a QR code on there or some kind of Braille identifier to identify every single coin, silver eagle or gold eagle, if you wanted to do some kind of blockchain-based tracking system. But... There is no good excuse. There's only lame excuses and people who are trying to cover things up. I think the two possibilities are, number one, they can't find the, the silver to make the eagles. But I don't think that's true. I think they can find them. They would have expanded production, like Ventures Gibson has said twice now, unless they were doing something with that. I think they aren't selling them to the public. I think they're holding them back from selling them to the public. They, they've told all the, the uh, authorized distributors that you're only going to get 450000 per every two weeks. And they, they're right on that track, 900 uh, Silver Eagles in, uh, in February. 
So yeah, there's something going on and it's not good at the mint. Just another thing our government is lying to us about. I would love to know if they're if they're saving us from some kind of financial disaster and then coming out with, hey, we've made all these silver eagle, you know, golden eagle coins. That's great. Why do it in secret? Tell the world what you're doing. Stop hiding. Stop. We we're we're big kids. And we know that government people are not good at at keeping secrets or at doing good things for the the citizens. So I don't know what's going on, but something huge is going on at the Mint, and they won't talk about it um, other than say, oh, we're we're expanding Silver Eagle production. I mean, it's just, it's in your face. She said it in the um, annual report, and she said it in a in a mailer that she sent to all those customers of the of the um, U.S. Mint. I got it, and I'm reading it. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're making a third of what your past production was. It is insane what's going on at the Mint. And I could go on for hours about it, but... Uh, we don't have enough time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Big Spring's a good point. Why are they producing so little silver eagles? And I guess the best answer that I come across, first of all, one thing is the, the U.S. Mint isn't charging those high premiums. That's the wholesalers right, right. and the dealers. That's the wholesalers and the dealers. So let's put the blame where it goes. No, 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 uh, no, 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 no. Because they, I mean, they don't have, they're not getting the coins. How are they going to pay their employees if, you know, they're obviously going to have to raise the prices. The demand is there. They're going to raise prices to if if Ventures Gibson gave them four or five million coins every month, they wouldn't need to raise prices because they could well, cover their fixed costs. If you if you if you compare what the Britannias and the and the Kangaroos and the Philharmonics and the Krugerrands, it's about the same, right? So that 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 doesn't really that doesn't really cut butter for me. It's, it's not it, it's it, not the same because they're 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 making again the the this U.S. Mint charges what two dollars. That's what yeah, they charge. Like two, two bucks over. Okay, so it, it's it's really the the high premiums. Yes, there is a lot of demand. I, I get that, but it, the high premiums are based upon what the the uh, the wholesalers and the coin dealers. It's not what the U.S. Mint is charging. So I just want people to understand. It's not charging. You're right. You're right. It's not charging, uh, but it's the fault of the U.S. Mint because they're not supplying enough. Yes, the U.S. the Silver Eagle is a very high in demand. But again, uh, I guess Bix, this is where I, I, I get back to the keep it simple, stupid. Because when I wake up in the morning, I'm burning energy. That I, I, I don't, I don't really care about my Silver Eagle. I care about. I got the light on to do this interview. I got the computer running. I've got the AC going in the background. There's some. There's food being cooked. And so all that's very important to me. I don't, I don't know if it's important to you. It's very important to me. And so when I get up in the morning, I, I really want that energy to be flowing. And so it's important that we understand what's going on with that. So I put that as probably the number one thing to be concerned about. What's happening with the U.S. Mint is interesting, but it's not triage if you're going to go into the emergency room. It's not that important to me because you could buy Krugerrands, you can buy Britannias, you can buy Philharmonics. There's plenty of places that you could buy, even the, the rounds, plenty of bars. There's plenty of silver to buy. Why the U.S. Mint is screwing up to me is, is not as important to the problems you and I and the rest of the world is facing that, that are really big problems. I mean, you could because do that's all. You could say that about anything, truthfully. I mean, no, 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 no. I'm serious. Stop using stop using silver eagle. I get it. I'm 
you stop using energy for a week and tell me what's more important. I understand that, but it's like comparing apples and oranges. No, it isn't. It is to everybody listening who's a silver fan or a gold fan. Yeah, but they're a silver fan because they're investing it to protect their wealth. I get that. But the energy comes first, right? I mean, if it, I it's tell a people stop. It's completely different world. And I know you, you try to link them together. I, I, I haven't dug How down. can they be different? How can they? I just showed you two charts showing how much energy it takes to produce them. How can it be different, Bix? I, I'm surprised you said that. I know you are because that's that's what, again, I get back to garbage in, garbage out. If the energy prices are fake, which I have proven every price is fake from derivatives, then how could you do an analysis? What energy costs? I mean, if, if oil went up 5,000 bucks a barrel, you know, what does it mean? Does everybody well, if it goes up? If it goes up five thousand dollars in Venezuela, or if it goes up five thousand in Venezuelan, yes, that's hyperinflation. But the thing it went, is, it went down uh, to minus forty dollars. I mean, that's because we shut down the entire global economy, and there's no there's no place to put the oil. It, it was you because do, you, the, the derivatives are trading a hundred times the underlying asset. That's what, the only reason silver went down. Somebody made a boatload of money by. Did you say silver or did you I say mean, silver oil. or oil? Oil. And that's that's the only reason. That's the only reason it's priced at minus 40. Yes, I get the argument that uh, what there was no storage, so we had to pay people to take it off our hands. I get that. But who made the money and how much did they make? They were they weren't trading, you know, the amount that was offline, it couldn't find storage. They were trading a hundred times that. So I I get I get that you want to link silver to everything, I mean, oil to everything and, and energy to everything. And I can I can understand your comment that it's important. I, I wanted to talk about silver and I don't think that it is, it's beneficial to link everything there is to energy. Yes, we won't survive without energy, just like we won't survive without the internet. Without the internet, you know, we'd have nuclear plants going off and we'd all be dead in a month. But to me, I've been fighting the silver fight for a long time. I I, I don't see. I know I know the golden the the oil fight. I I get that. I I don't know it like you do, but I haven't studied it because I don't think it's relevant to what I'm really interested in. Yes, if if oil goes away, if power goes away, we're dead. If silver goes away, we have no electronics. Will we die at some point? Well, we'd be in a lot of hurt. If silver went away, it's in everything that we have. So, I, I mean, I, I I know you want to talk about it. You, you brought it up every time we change the subject, and it's the number one thing for you. But for no, me, is it? Well, I, I, and I can't argue it because I haven't spent my life studying it. Well, I, I, think, I think that's the fundamental difference. And I appreciate you saying that because every, most people believe in the energy tooth fairy. I make that joke. Because they have no idea where this energy is coming from. They really don't. And, and so w- when, it's a, when it's abundant and plentiful, then you, you kind of take everything for granted because everything is working. But all the collapses like in the, the ancient Roman Empire collapse and, and the late Bronze Age, it was actually due to the falling energy return on investment. That's why I study it. That, that's why I, I study these things because it's, it's, it's happened over and over again. And so th- when... We under, and I showed you how much energy it takes to produce gold and silver at Fresnillo, and that's just one example. Without the energy, there's no production of gold and silver. And, and, and so I think this is why it's important to me because it's the foundation of our economy. And 
yes, we need silver to make electronics, but we, we always needed energy, whether it was wood energy, whether it's human energy, animal energy, horsepower. It's always been the energy first, then everything comes after that. And so I think if we're going to understand precious metals and money and the economy, you got to understand the energy if you don't, because economists don't realize where, where does the GDP come from? It comes from oil consumption growth. That's exactly where it comes from. So people say we're going to continue to increase our GDP, even though it's manipulated or inflated. You can't if you don't have energy growth. And so I think that's why it's, I always come back to it. And, and I don't understand why people don't, because it's the foundation of everything we do. I mean, if we don't eat, we starve to death. That's energy, right? It's all, it's the plants need the energy to get that from the sun and they get it. So it's, it always comes back to the energy. And it's not that I always go back to it. It's because I realize it's the most important factor. Well, isn't, isn't everything energy? If you, if you get to the cosmic level, silver's energy just slowed down in a certain way with certain molecules. Bingo. I mean, every, everything is energy. So, I mean, I, I just, I, it doesn't help me to, to spin my head around that and, I, I'm glad that you like doing it, but I, I don't I don't choose to dive down that path because I don't think it helps me as much as the things I do dive down. And I appreciate you saying that. That make I now I understand your, your thinking process. So it makes sense to me. It does. And so it that's I think that's why we have a fundamental difference, whether we agree with it or not. And so uh, and, and many people in, in the precious metal community look at the metals separately from energy. They, they do. They just, and I, again, uh, if we bring it back, keep it, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, that's where the, the, that's where the, the, the solutions or the problems or the understanding is easier. The details become less important and, the, and, and the, and it becomes more apparent. But unfortunately, I, it's hard to get this point across because people, I just don't think they don't think it's important. That's what it comes down to, Bix. People don't really believe the energy is that important. So, guys, let's hit a couple, let's say, rapid fire questions. Let's try and keep these okay. Keep, okay. keep, keep these a little bit more succinct. But okay. um, you know, sticking with the energy idea, one guy asked, it would be interesting to hear them debate how the energy cliff will affect proof of work mining for cryptocurrencies. I could start with that one. Um it would be it would be bad, obviously, unless unless there's different ways um, proof of work is is done. Proof of work consumes a hell of a lot of energy. If you don't have it, yeah, it's a problem. Proof of stake, um, a, a flat proof of stake is kind of susceptible to stuff. I think there's new ways to like uh, Theta has a great way. You have proof of stake that has validators and uh, guardians that check that ultra fast, no energy type of uh, blockchain. Um, but yeah, if, if you don't have energy, you have a problem with, with proof of work. And most likely that problem would be fewer and fewer people would have the energy to mine. You'd lose a lot of your miners, which is a lot of the security around uh, Bitcoin, for example. Steve, anything to add there? I totally agree with Bix. And, and that's why I'm a big believer in, in physical metals, because over crypto because they're they're truly decentralized you can walk into any pawn shop even though you, you have to report it if it's a certain amount you can just sell you gold and silver you don't need some high-tech mumbo jumbo to to sell something you can do it quite easily and that's how i think it's let's keep it keep it simple stupid and mm -hmm. you know precious metals 2500 years have proven themselves okay 
something we've touched on a couple times during this call, the COMEX. Is there not a function for producers and miners to be able to hedge their production using those futures contracts? Is, is that not a positive for part of the industry? It, it would be if that's what was being done. But I don't know any, I mean, there's probably a couple uh, miners that are hedging, but not many compared to the amount of open interest they have. I mean, and the amount of volume that goes through the comics, this is not about hedging. This is about control and manipulation and concentration of um, who who has the short position, for example. You're talking a handful of banks control. It, it bounces you know, back and forth to each other, but it... it Futures and options, the reason it's there is to hedge, theoretically, is to hedge your position. And then you have your speculators. Well, when 98% of it is non-hedging trades, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And that's what we got right now. I mean, we got over, I think the COMEX is is somewhere close to 100, 100 billion ounces traded every year. The LBMA is at 120 billion ounces. And it, it just is so off the charts not hedging. And Jeff Christian can say whatever he wants about, you know, his his theories on hedging. It it doesn't add up. And you know, trading a hundred times on a single exchange at the COMEX, the underlying asset is not hedging. Um, and most miners don't hedge unless Steve, do you know any any miner who's significantly hedging silver right now? I, I don't focus on the details of the mining industry, but from, from talking to people in the industry, there are many different levels of hedging for, for either, either uh, producers of, of, of bullion or manufacturers or even miners. Uh, so there's different levels of people hedging along the way for smart reasons, but there is a lot of speculation. There's a lot of people in the industry that are speculating on, on silver, and then they do that in the futures market. But I always come back to this. The two things I would say about the comics is I believe, and you probably see me say this, I, the comics is becoming less relevant because right now there's 950 plus million ounces on the silver ETFs. So that wasn't the case 15, 15 20 years ago. So where the trading action took place was on the exchanges, on the LBMA, on the COMEX, even you know in, in different areas. But now what's happened is we, with all this silver and gold moving on the ETFs, whether you agree with it, that it's there or not, I do believe most of it's there. Well, then we have to pay attention to what's happening with that, those inventories. And so, and then lastly, because the, the changes of the inventories on these major ETFs due to institutional flung flows, kind of dictates the price action. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but if you're going to trade it, you should know that. Uh, and secondly, if if indeed the comics in the United States is guilty of manipulating, then there's 2.7 billion Chinese and Indians that should know better. Because they were very, you know, they, they could take out the comics in no time. There's only 30 something, you know. And so it's it's, I believe the comics is becoming less relevant over time because the market that Ted Butler started talking about 20 years ago is not the same market today. It's kind of like World War I general trying to fight World War III today. It's, it's changed. The dynamics of the silver market have changed due to whether we agree with it or not, institutions needing a place to invest in silver and gold, even though I know there's a lot of 
paper. There's, there's a lot of interesting things going on in that market, but this is where they go. Uh, and it, I'm not talking about the big banks either. We're talking about a lot of institutions that are not financial institutions that control a lot of people's money. If they want to get into silver, they're going to do it in an ETF or in GLD or the IAU. They're not going to buy futures. They can't buy futures. And so we need to understand the market's changed. And, 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 I, and so that's the only reason why I think we should, we should pay less attention to what's happening to the COMEX because the 50-ton brontosaurus is now the ETFs. Mm-hmm. It, you got this little shriveled up you know, old elephant now, that's, uh, that's the comics. What do you guys think is the most important factor for gold and for silver, respectively, currently affecting the price of each of them? Comics contracts, concentration of comics contracts. It's the same people trading back and forth to set the price. I think, I think from the people who are looking to break through, you got to take a good look at the gold silver ratio. 85 to 1 is the most ridiculous thing probably ever since you know JP Morgan jacked it up to 125 to 1. 85 to 1 gold silver ratio when silver has what three years supply deficit right now. And historically it's coming out of the ground at seven to one. And I can give you a hundred reasons why it should be closer to one to one, much less 85 to 1. So I, I tell everybody who's interested in seeing gold and silver freely traded. If you like gold, buy as much silver as you can now and then swap it over when the ratio goes 10 to 1. Swap it back into gold. Um, But right now, I haven't heard anybody with any decent argument why silver won't massively outperform gold in the the coming years. Give us a handful of reasons why you think the ratio should be at least 1 to 1, Bix. Coming out of the ground, it's 7 to 1 at the the minor level. Mm -hmm. At at least the, uh, the... primary minor level. Um, historically, it's you know 15 to 1. Ever since the, the derivative contracts came out in the 1970s, when it became electron, electronic trades determined price, it went from you know, 10, 15 to 1 to 85 to 1 now. Um, mining, they're, they're trying to pull it out of the ground, but they they can't get as much as they want. Uh, the Green New Deal is going to take more silver than humanity has. Um, every ounce of gold that comes out of the ground is shoved in a safe and buried. Every ounce of silver that comes out, 70% of it goes into disposable electronics. I mean, there's a million reasons why the price should be closer to one to one than 85 to one. There is no justification for 85 to one other than that's the price set off by the derivatives on the Cummings. Steve, your thoughts on the most important factors that are affecting the price of both metals? I think it, it, we could take a, a, a good the playbook from the precious metal uh, investors. Right now, they're not buying silver. I, I didn't, I'm not I saying am. it. Just, I, I, no, I know you I know are, is- but the premiums have collapsed for a reason. And so this is part of the, the flow of the metals industry. Uh, there is a reason we have this gold-silver ratio, and I've mentioned it's the, it's the cost of production. So if you figure 1,600, 1,550 divided by 20, what do you get? You get 80 to 1. It's not rocket science. And so unfortunately, the way metal is being produced, this is how the market is, is, is basing the price action, whether we agree with it or not. And then when you get a lot of demand, uh, you get to see higher prices uh, uh, of the metals. And so right now, 
the market is basing it on very low demand for whatever reason. Institutions are not a part of the gold or silver buying. It was more of an inverse dollar trade since November. And so they're not really a part of this. They think we're going to have very low economic activity, recession kind of happening in the middle of the year. So they're not a part of it. And even precious metal uh, buyers are really pulling back. They're, they're waiting for either lower prices or something else that gen- motivates it. The issue is, I do agree we're going to see a much lower gold to silver ratio. And that's not due to the manipulation stopping. That's due to the world realizing they're going to have to protect their wealth. And trying to get into the available silver, there's just not that much more silver available above ground than there is gold. And so in the past, we have this is what we've seen in in past civilizations. They've done it based on the cost of production, sort of. They also based it on how much silver and gold there was well, in Greek, in the Greek, in the Greek Empire, they would look at how much gold and silver there was. So that's kind of how it was traded to its ratio. But even though there's seven to one gold, the cost to get out of the ground is is eighty to one right now, seventy five, eighty to one, and that's the that's that's just what it is, unfortunately. So that's how I see it. But it, I and I'll, lastly, I'll say this: when silver hit fifty in two thousand. 11 and gold hit 18, 1900, 2011. I, I looked at what, what happened during the pandemic shutdown. Gold hit a new high, silver didn't. So I'm thinking, what the heck happened this time around? We can speculate till the cows come home. The issue is the pandemic scared the hell out of people that the economies wouldn't, wouldn't recover really. But what does that do? That pushes people into gold more than silver because silver Unfortunately, 50, well, fortunately, really, 50 or more percent goes into industry. And so I think the market, and this is my speculation, the reason why silver didn't take off as much as gold, because the market, for whatever reason, didn't think the, the, the problems with the, with the economy, it wasn't good for silver. But they're, they're, this is going to change in the future. I think silver is going to be the most, uh, it's going to perform much, much better than gold dollar for dollar, ounce for ounce. So on those things, I do agree with Bix. It's just going to, it's going to happen due to the energy problems. That's where we disagree. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think there will be a flip of the switch when the metals are revalued against the US dollar and against each other? I, I've heard a lot about revaluation of the dollar, revaluation of gold. Um, that, I mean, just just that statement in itself is a it's kind of like saying, okay, it's going to be fixed by the government type of thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll revalue gold. It's on our books at $42 now, and we're going to change it to $500 or whatever they want to do. Um, no, people have to get out of the mindset that the, these governments are going to be the deciders. They can't even decide what kind of toilet paper to put in Congress anymore. They can't, Russia is not going to agree with the US, and the US is not going to agree with China. And what we're seeing, and I think is the most important thing is the destruction of faith in our government leaders and our currencies. They are printing money like it's going out of style, and that's just what they tell us. We don't know what they do behind the scenes. We've we've heard you know snippets of you know Kastanov and Fitz talking about a hundred trillion dollars that have been created out of thin air, and and it was on the books, but now it disappeared. But I think the the biggest driver of gold and silver and anything in the future is going to be lack of faith in our leaders, especially the World Bank and the IMF and the Federal Reserve System and the U.S. Treasury and every central bank around the world. 
they're going to be the ones we blame for the mess. They're not going to be the ones we turn to to save us from, you know, the de- destroyed monetary system that they set up and they created these bubbles to crash. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, for gold and silver, nobody knows what the true fair market value of silver is anymore. And, you know, what do you what do you base it against? If we have a system collapse, you're not basing it against the U.S. dollar or the unbacked fiat yuan or ruple or anything. Kind of like okay, what, what can what's the the purchasing power of a ounce of silver when the whole system falls apart? And what will we need it for? Will there be electric cars if if the system falls apart? <laughs> All kinds of things come into play. It's just like a mishmash with no deciders. And I've I've been screaming this for a long time. If this system, when this system falls apart, it's the first time in history we've been on unbacked fiat monetary system. And if you would have told people this in 1900, those days we were talking about, they found the gold. Hey, in the future, they're not going to have any backing in anything, and people are just going to create money out of thin air. They would have laughed at you. And now we're going to have to live through the laughter, and and we're going to live through the pain of it all collapsing. Um, that's that's the fear that I, I see coming. No deciders means there's no one going to decide what's going to go on. But now, in the United States, we have a constitution. We have gold and silver as money. We can always fall back to that. A lot of countries don't have that to fall back on. And I think we do have the gold and silver hiding somewhere in the Grand Canyon or wherever you want to at the U.S. Mint. Um, but it's not something that these guys have not thought about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the road to Ruta work where the original stuff came from was the Fed Boston out of out of uh, out of the comic books that they released about going back to a gold standard. This is the Federal Reserve talking about a gold standard. And everybody was my Gata friends were shocked. Big how can you say this? The Fed bad. I'm like, look what they're saying. They're saying we're going back to a gold standard. We better figure out how to allocate gold and silver to people before it all falls apart. These are the so, children's books in 1980. Uh, no, this is the the wishes and rainbows and uh, the road to Ruta uh, teachers guide out of the Fed Boston. You can go to my website. I have a video on it. Um, they released it in 1981 originally, and then in 2007, right before the 2008 crash, they redid it. Put 9-11 in the sand, you know, all the conspiracy stuff that people love to talk about. Um, but a lot of it, you know, came true and is coming true. They talk about uh, the golden light inside the canyon, basically the Grand Canyon. They're talking about within this comic book coming out of the Fed. So it, yeah, a lot of people have said, Bix, it's it's crazy. No, you're just making that up. I'm saying, well, read the teacher's guide. It says exactly the way I'm interpreting the, the comic book. It says to ask the kids this in the teacher's guide. It even says, are we stretching the metaphor about going back to a gold standard within the Fed comic? So, yeah, I mean, that's a different discussion for a different day. If you want to go down the conspiracy side, I'm not when my when I analyze things, I'm not afraid of conspiracies. A lot of people will say that's a conspiracy theory and that's boom, the mind shuts instantly without digging in. Okay, what's a, what's good data and what's bad data within that theory? Um, and we can find a lot of good stuff. And a lot of people miss out on that if they just say, if they hear that's a conspiracy theory and, and shut their minds. I heard that about Enron. I remember I was in the middle of that Enron stuff. It was one of our customers and and we're hearing all these conspiracy theories that they're setting up these shell corporations. And like, well, I'm not going to not believe it just because you say, oh, it's this crazy Theory and then it turns out, yeah, they were doing it. They turned in conspiracy fact. Bernie Madoff was the same way. Nobody believed Harry Macropolis when he was saying, "Oh my God, this is a Ponzi for years." Um, so you get, the, the worst thing I think I, I think people could do right now is turn your head to an idea, dive in, and, and prove why it's not right. Um, or get the data that you need from that and, and build your own 
way to think about things. And I think that's so important to to think for yourself going forward. And and just like Steve does with with the energy stuff, that's an original thought. You know, people have been talking about it, but I don't think as deep as Steve has. People need to think for themselves going forward because there's nobody who's going to save agree. us from this one. Steve, your your thoughts on that? And I'm so sorry. What was the question again? Sorry. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, we kind of we kind of wrapped a couple into there. I can't remember either now. Oh, about uh, revaluing if yeah. they revalue gold and silver. Well, I didn't mention this, but you, you see the background I have here, and people. Because I'm a, I'm a big precious metal guy, and I like mining and and what's happening with the metals, and I, I spend a lot of time on it, like Vix and many people in our industry, but. The reason why I have this, this is the this signifies the sunset of the U.S. shale industry. And if it wasn't for the U.S. shale industry, uh, we would have been in a, a global, a U.S. and global re, uh, recession depression. So it saved us for another 10, 15 years. And so uh, it wasn't the Fed money printing or the QE that brought us out of that 2008 financial crisis. It, it was this right behind us. Because you can do all the money printing in the world. You can send people a bunch of paper like they do in Venezuela. But if you lose your energy production like they are in Venezuela, then you have hyperinflation. Because you need the energy to back it up. And I mentioned to Tom in our, one of our interviews, the reason why we were pulled out of the Great Depression in the 1930s wasn't due to Roosevelt's New Deal or World War II. It was the United States was the Saudi Arabia of oil production by 19, 1940. We're producing 70% of all the oil in the world. So it always comes back to the energy. So uh, the revaluing of, 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 of metals, I think, is, is less important than to what's going to happen with this energy and how that impacts the metals. Because I think here's the problem that I think we need to be concerned about. The central governments, they're going to get into serious trouble trying to manage all this with less energy. And so we, I see the breakdown in central government. So I'm, I'm not worried about the elite. I'm not worried about the central governments because they're going to have trouble trying to manage all this. And, and, and so that's a bigger problem. That, that's where the big problems are in the future. Well, guys, I think that's a pretty good place <laughs> to kind of wrap up. All right. I, I really appreciate the professionalism that you both displayed, the back and forth that we had. Bix, is there anything else that you'd like to add maybe before we wrap up here? No, I, I just, thanks for providing the the platform for us. You know, we were fighting back and forth on Twitter. I'll, I'll, I'll take you on. I'll take you on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have no ring to go in. So thank you for providing this and um, looking forward to, you posting this and everybody to to, to watch it because I think there's a lot to learn from from what was discussed. Absolutely, and I think we'll have to put a poll up on Twitter of who won or who lost. Yeah. Uh, that was we're that was suggested. We're, we're all winners in my book. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I I I agree because you know, in the end, in the end, I, I do agree with Bix's overall assumption that silver is actually going to be the the uh, the underdog. Uh, and I think the message I want to put out takes away the frustration because if you get into silver and you buy because you think it's going to go to 50 because someone said so, and I'm guilty of that years ago because I was, I was ignorant. Uh, and then they find out it doesn't go to 50, but it goes lower than they bought it. They sell it. 
and from what I'm trying to share with people, you don't want to sell you metal. You want to you want a dollar cost average slowly over time, with however it fits your budget, and you want to hold them for the mid to long term because that's when the fireworks are going to are going to happen. So it's that message that I, I share the mid to long term why it's important to be in physical precious metals, especially silver. Mm-hmm. Excellent, guys. Of course, Bix, you're available on Twitter at Road to Ruda and RoadToRuda.com. SRS Rocco Report on Twitter for Steve and SRSRoccoReport.com. Guys, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate the back and forth, sharing ideas, and again, the professionalism. Thank you. Thanks, Bix. Thanks, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.